So Luke uh, chapter 23 verse 1 is where we're going to start. We'll cover the first 25 verses of Luke chapter 23. And um, today we're coming upon Jesus' trials. Um, now one thing we can say right off the bat is that Jesus' trials uh, were illegal because they took place at night. If the people of if the Jewish people and the Roman people wanted to be legal, they should have kept Jesus uh, in prison overnight and done their done the trials in the light of the day. Um, but perhaps uh, there was a sizable enough group of people that wouldn't have stood for this, uh, who would be around during the day that would not necessarily be paying attention at night that they could avoid by doing these trials at night. But whatever the case is, that is the, the backdrop of what we are studying today. And um, as we look at this, um, I just made a couple of simple points. And the first section, the first 12 verses, Jesus is falsely accused but says nothing. You know, I, I think this is perhaps one of the most uh, in, interesting things about the whole trials of Jesus situation is that there are so many times when Jesus always had a ready answer. Um, he always had an answer that could not be argued with, and when they tried to trip him up, he always had an answer that uh, would not would, would show that he was far wiser than what they thought originally. And I remember one particular passage where it says these guards were sent to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and they didn't say he strong-armed us. They didn't say he walked away from us. They said the, these words. No man spoke like this man. So his, his words and the way that he dealt with things was very clear that it was something superior to what most people did. And so let's look at the first 12 verses of our passage today. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him on to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying he himself is Christ a king. <clears throat> which we know is not true because he already said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. So, Jesus is not in this compulsion to, ha to have to echo those words. He's just trying to make Pilate think about those words. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirred up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, 
He sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. So keep in mind, he's had two interviews now, one with Pilate and one with Herod, and he's only said three words in our whole passage. I find that interesting, because some of these chapters leading up to here, if you have a Bible that's in where the words of Christ are unread, most of the chapter is him. And in this chapter, it's not the case. And the chief priests and scribes stood vehemently and accused him. And Herod with his men of war sat at naught and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him to, again to Pilate. And the same day, Herod and Pilate were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And let's just look at a couple things here. First of all, um, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man, which he will say repeatedly. It's kind of interesting how Pilate has this um, experience, this thought process, and the rest of the people are talking about how bad he is. Of course, they can't get their story straight. They're bearing false witness. My dad always told me to, to, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said. Um, because the truth doesn't change. And then Pilate finds out that Jesus is a Galilean and he says, maybe Herod will take care of this problem. Now, now Herod and Pilate didn't really like each other. But for political expediency, Pilate's like, I can give this guy to Herod, he'll deal with it, and then I will not have to deal with it. So he sends him to Herod, but Herod doesn't get any further than he does. And it's interesting to me that they became friends that day. That Jesus actually brought them uh, together in friendship. Now, I don't necessarily believe that this meant, like, companionship friendship but it was definitely political friendship that he, he brought them together in and um, <clears throat> it's interesting how how playing politics and doing the political thing is, is not new to this century or to this year um, Herod uh, wanted to see him for a long season because he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Now Jesus had done a lot of miracles. Um, the book of John says that if you wrote down every miracle that Jesus had done, it would fill so many books and so many uh, places that the books wouldn't all fit on the earth. But it's interesting how Jesus was very selective at the same time with the way he did his miracles. There was at least one place, if not more, where it said that Jesus did not do any miracles because of their lack of faith. And he talked about the heart of man and it said no one, no one needed to 
tell them what, tell Jesus what, the, what was in the heart of man because he knew the heart of man. And so he chose to refrain from doing miracles in those situations. But then there are other times where it says that he saw everyone and did as many miracles as he could until the sunset. And he never gives numbers as to how many people that he healed. And so you think about the sheer number and the sheer volume. And you think about in some senses, in a worldly sense, if he had done one major miracle, maybe he could have been let go because how could Herod or Pilate dispute that? But he wasn't using those miracles for his gain, for, uh, for his own personal gain. As a matter of fact, his very reason for using miracles was to show us of our spiritual need. Any physical miracle that he does in our lives is a picture of our spiritual need for him. So... <clears throat> Could someone look at First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-three? First Peter two twenty-three. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. When Jesus is standing before these people in these trials. He is thinking about his father and the promise that he made to his father just a few hours before when he was agonizing in the garden. It says that he sweat as it were, drops of blood, and he said, not my will, but thine be done. And it's interesting to know as well that he was on a redemptive path on our behalf and any alteration of that plan would have altered our eternity. But with our eternity at stake, there's no one that we would rather have in the driver's seat of that situation than the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because he knew it had to be done and he did it the way it was to be done. It's common in today's world to talk about the different ways you can find God find peace but as Dave Ramsey says at the end of his financial radio show every day the only way to financial peace or I would add any peace is to walk daily with the Prince of Peace Christ Jesus that's the only way to peace the only world peace we're going to have, the only good one world government we're going to have is when Jesus puts his feet back on the earth and assumes his place as the eternal ruler over the throne of his father David. And he is going to physically do that one day. And I'm going to be around to see it. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And he could have done so many things, could have said so many things. When he was in the garden, remember, he said a word. He said, I am, and they fell backward. They had no power of their own to take him. He had to give up his life. 
David Hunt says, the more clearly <clears throat> we see the infinite chasm between God's glory and our sinful falling short thereof, the greater will be our appreciation of his grace and love in bringing that gulf to redeem us. Again, that's David Hunt. What a wonderful um, thought process that is. And then our second section, um, the people called for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be killed. Again, it's amazing to me how easily people can be swayed. I think we've seen more and more in the last year how people can read a headline and believe everything it says. And even if the headline is totally wrong, any retraction gets buried. Nobody cares about the corrections to the headline. They only care about the initial headline. And they go and they go running headlong. The Bible says that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. And I've done that in the past myself. And it's not good. It's a bad way to do things. But our world has done that on such a major scale. And, uh, you know, kind of what uh, Mike was talking about, our, our need to be um, civically minded and, and socially active. I just, I think about William Wilberforce. Did you realize that slavery was abolished in Great Britain about 60 years before it was in the United States? And there was a point where William Wilberforce was... Um, struggling over whether he should be involved in Parliament when he had a heart for preaching the gospel. And someone challenged him that he needed to be involved with both. He needed to continue to preach the gospel, but also to be involved in Parliament. And when he realized that, that's when things started to happen in the, in the abolition movement for slavery. And Great Britain was was smarter than we were and dealt with it, like I said, 50 or 60 years before we did. If you watch the movie Amazing Grace, you'll, you'll see all about that. It's one of my favorite movies. Incidentally, John Newton, the great slave owner, said this as he was getting ready to die and after he had watched slavery be abolished in Great Britain where he was once a slave owner, he said, there's only two things I'm sure of as I end my life. One is that I'm a great sinner. And the other is that I serve a great Savior. And the Savior that we're talking about right now is that Savior. So if we look at Luke 23, 13 to 19, we see once again an example of how easy it is to stir people up, which is why I, I brought, brought this up because I think we as believers can stir people up in positive ways. 
as long as we are holding forth the truth. Because we can be as guilty as the other side with um, making things seem different than they are. We need to be focused on the truth. Well, 23 verse 13 says, And Pilate, when he called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And behold, I have examined him before you and have found no fault in this man, touching the things whereof you accuse him. Nor, no, nor yet Herod, for I sent him to him. And lo, nothing worth of death is done unto him. Think of the number of chances that these people have to make things right. To not make this the greatest mistake, and yet they are so blinded. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried all at once, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast in prison. Pilate, um, Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake to them again, but they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And so we, we see that this Barabbas, this insurrectionist and this murderer, I, I heard of a, old movie, I believe, where Barabbas is um, released and later com comes to know and follow Jesus. I don't know if that actually happened. But there were three crosses that day, and many people believe, and I tend to agree with them, that that middle cross where Jesus was, he was between two thieves. That middle cross very easily and very possibly could have been intended for Barabbas because he deserved to die that death. He was a murderer and an insurrectionist. And uh, it's quite possible that the thieves uh, that surrounded Jesus worked with him. And yet, they said, release to us Barabbas. And, and they knew uh, some of the bad things that he'd done. This is the craziness. This is the crazy world in which we live. They, they knew some of, some of the bad things he'd done. And yet they wanted him released back into their community. And they wanted Jesus, who only did good, to be crucified. Kind of reminds me of the way the climate in which we have now because if you're liberal then your personal life doesn't matter and the things that you have done in your personal life don't matter and you can somehow um, remain a hero to the people around you even though you're, you're, you've been a creep but if someone who is on the conservative side of things even gets accused of something creepy, they're labeled a creep for the rest of their life. Going back to what I said earlier about believing every headline, 
and not caring one whit about the retractions. Because when we have an agenda, it doesn't matter what the truth is. I think that's the most important thing to get out of this particular section. These people had an agenda. They wanted to take Jesus down. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to be done. And so they were willing to do whatever they could to do it. And then also we see in this passage that Pilate probably picked Barabbas as one of the two prisoners because he's like if I pick the worst of the worst they will definitely let Jesus go because they're envious of him that's why they brought him to me another passage tells us that but he was wrong because the, the leaders the religious and political leaders of the day had already stirred them up and persuaded them I wouldn't put a pass on to possibly even pay them. You know, I, I've actually seen uh, ads in the news for paid protesters. Because when you have an agenda, you're willing to do whatever you can to get it out there. But Jesus ends up taking the place of Barabbas. And I wonder if we could look at John 18, 37 and 38. John 18, 37 and 38. Just to look a little bit at the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And how Pilate comes really close, really close to understanding the full truth of the gospel. Of course, really close isn't close enough. I remember Herod said to Paul, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. Of course, we know that that is not enough. But let's look at this passage. If somebody has it, they can read it. John 18, 37 and 38. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. So he asked him if he was a king, and Jesus responds, For this cause came I to the world. Remember, what did the, what did the wise men say when they came seeking Jesus? They said, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Not who will become king of the Jews. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Jesus says, for this cause came I unto the world. And then he talks about testifying of the truth. And Pilate says those famous words. What is truth? You know, that, that's actually one of the more powerful Scenes in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, where you see Pilate standing there 
in front of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he asks him, what is truth? And again, you wonder what exactly was going through um, his mind. Apparently, according to one book I read, that at least according to some Catholic traditions, Pilate joined the church. Most other um, scholarship does not teach that. Pilate was a vile man and apparently never changed his ways, but you have to wonder what exactly was going through his mind because he would later post on Jesus' cross, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it just shows that even in this time of dark torment that God was in control. Jesus was continuing his substitutionary work for us. The small boy had been consistently late for dinner. One particular day, his parents had warned him to be on time, but he arrived later than ever. He had found his parents already seated at the table about to start eating. Quickly, he sat at his place, then noticed what was set before him a slice of bread and a glass of water. There was silence as he sat staring at his plate crushed. Suddenly he saw his father's hand reach over, pick up his plate and set it before himself. Then his dad put his own full plate in front of his son, smiling warmly as he made the exchange. When the boy became a man, he said, All my life I've known what God was like by what my father did. That night, that's what Jesus did for us. We deserved the bread and water, and he gave us a feast. He promises us the wedding supper of the Lamb. Okay, so Pilate up up until this point is maintaining that Jesus is innocent. But it's not enough to maintain that through word only. And uh, we'll see that because Pilate does not have a foundation in God that he will make the political expedient decision. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, begged them again. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them a third time, What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voice of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for the sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. 
Think about this, Pilate's wife had had a dream the night before. I think it says in Matthew that she sent a letter to him and said, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things in a dream because of him. And perhaps that's part of what's behind this struggle that Pilate is having and how he's come to realize that this man is innocent. But he doesn't want to lose Caesar's approval. Remember in other passages, these people said, we will have no king but Caesar. And they said, if you don't crucify him, you are not Caesar's friend. And being Caesar's friend was more important than following Christ. And so Pilate consents to their will. It's interesting, these people who told Jesus not too long ago that they were in bondage to no man had to go to the Roman government for permission to kill him. We're not in bondage to anybody, but we can't even exercise our law that he must die unless you give us the authority to do it. There's another striking passage between Pilate and Jesus. I think it's part of the what is truth passage. But Pilate makes this statement, do you not know that I have power to um, to kill you or power to let you go? And Jesus said, you could have no power at all except it was given to you from above. So all these things must have been running through Pilate's mind. And if you were naive to the story, perhaps you were wondering if at the last minute Pilate would do the right thing and say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to allow you to do this. But he doesn't. Now, the, the tricky thing about that is that we know that it was the divine ultimate will of God that Jesus suffered. But it, but it was still personal responsibility on Pilate's part that caused this to happen. We need to make sure that we learn a lesson from Pilate to not just do the expedient thing, to not do the thing that will give us the most accolades, the most popularity, the most friends here on earth. I'd rather have one or two friends that believe and proclaim the gospel and will stand for it no matter what than to have hundreds of friends that want to water it down and make it more welcoming. Nothing's more welcoming than Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, but you must come to the cross. If you don't come to the cross, there, there's no salvation. What are you even being saved from if you 
are okay the way you are. I didn't come to Christ because I was okay the way I was. I came to Christ because I was dead the way I was and he made me alive. All right, if we could look at Psalm 22, 12 and 13, just in closing to see some of what was going through Jesus' mind. And I find it interesting that David was given this insight because it's so, so spot on to what was going on that day. Psalm 22, 12, and 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths to me like a ravening and roaring lion. And that's what Jesus has been subjected to this whole time. False witness in the dead of night. These people calling out to crucify him when all he did was good. He raises Lazarus from the dead, so they're like, let's kill Lazarus too. They couldn't pretend that he wasn't alive because they knew he was, but they just wanted to kill him again so that he wouldn't be a living testimony. And of course we know how difficult that night was on his mother Mary. She stood by the cross weeping and Jesus gave her to the Apostle John and said, take care of her. And it says from that hour he went to John's house and lived. It makes you wonder why he didn't give her to his own brothers, but we find out that they didn't come to faith in Christ until after the resurrection. Jude and James, <clears throat> both brothers of Jesus, would later write Gospels where they, where they would not address themselves as brothers of the Lord, but rather bondservants. Because when you encounter Jesus, you're never the same. May I encourage you, if you have not yet trusted Jesus, to do it today. That's the way to make the most of your 2018. And uh, I really feel that God has allowed me to slow down over the past few days because of this illness. And it's a blessing in disguise because it's not in my nature to slow down. But as we continue through this year, may we just pause often to reflect that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chose to put himself between us and the grave, between us and hell, to give us a way to heaven because he loved us. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I gather you as a mother hen gathered her chicks, but you would not. Yes, 
They would not. Jerusalem would not. But if you will, he will do that. He holds me every day. And he wants to do the same for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just praise you for these words in Luke 23. We praise you for the submission of your son. We praise you for his willingness to die for us. For his willingness to endure torture. To endure patiently false accusations. For we know we as humans would not endure that way. But he did, and we're thankful for it. Now, Lord, be with us as we go our separate ways. Bless the remainder of the day. Thank you for the sunshine as you smile down from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.